The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know, we're not really sure you're a spreader or a shedder when you vaccinate. We have to understand that the point of vaccination is to allow the immune system to recognize a virus or recognize a pathogen and be able to create efficient defense system against its presence. All right, here we go again, everybody. Welcome back to the Selfie Show, where we are bringing you the weekly dose of sweet and salty For those of you new to the show, my name is Tori. I am the founder and now co-host of The Selfie Show. I am a NICU nurse, blogger, grad school student, and podcaster. And sitting across from me is my beautiful co-host. That would be me, Sam. I am flight nurse, professor, powerlifter, and co-host of The Selfie Show. And today we're here talking off the clock again, Mm -hmm. this time about the vaccine. Woo! A lot of... A lot of talk on that. We We had to to hit it head on. Yeah. This was something we actually, um, so off the cuff here, you guys, we both got the vaccine this week. And we have been getting nonstop conversation about it from everyone. So what do we do when we have a topic? We bring it here. We bring it here. Bring it here to you guys. Um, For the record, for you guys. So Sam and I got it the same day. It was... uh, Let's see, we're recording on Sunday and we got it on Thursday. Thursday. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to talk to you guys about it openly because I do think this is a hot topic. Um, and it's interesting because this is a it, it's very controversial, um, but it is something that I think both of us wanted to share with you. And it's funny because I was actually watching Do- Dr. Cedric's story. Dr. Cedric got his vaccine today and he purposely said he was like, I am not going to post about it because this is just routine. Like, that's how he yes, sees I it. I loved that statement, too, because it really, it should be yeah. routine. But because it's new, yeah. we all Which understand the hesitation. But that's why we just want to bring information forward so that you can make your own informed decision. Right. And that's what this is really about. Yes. It's not about preaching. It's not. A, we want to bring you the true science. We want to bring you an And we expert. get nerdy. Yeah. I love <laughs> The cellular nerd talk. So today we're really going to get very scientific. We're going to get to the science of this vaccine, which I think isn't really highlighted enough. We don't talk enough about that. That it's we don't do enough deep diving into that. You know, so we want to we wanted to bring on an expert in the field. Before we hop into that, Sam, what is okay? Single girl, married girl, life tip of the week. You Where go are first. we going? You go All right. First. Okay, so um, something that I think is really interesting um, that has evolved for us over the year is, um, you know, I this year I feel like I've grown immensely, probably more in my life than I ever have. Like this 30 
one thirty two were like the biggest years for me as personal growth. And it's funny because um, something that I'm so thankful for and I talk about all the time is um, Jacob is willing to grow with me. And there's so many things that I'm doing right now that I would consider selfish, like this show, producing the show. Um, social media, getting diving into how growing. you live at your house practically. I'm here like three times a week right now. I have a, he has a second wife now. Um, but what's very I feel so thankful for is to have a partner in life that will literally support it. And I think that's something to be said for everyone grows. I mean, I'm such a different person than I was 10 years ago, you know, at 23. And it's funny because I just think about how much I've even changed since we got married three years ago. Our, our there was year. no tips from Tori when you got married. I was yeah. at the wedding. Yeah. Three years ago was my our wedding. Our New Year's Eve will be our third, third year anniversary. But long story short is um, maybe just to allow your partner to grow and to part to grow with them because everyone's always evolving and changing. Well, and he's like your rock. Like he definitely grounds you when yeah. all of this gets overwhelming and you start to kind of spin. Yeah. He, I feel like centers you. And For sure. And so rad to like watch. Yeah. All right. What's your tip of the week, madam? I feel like I kind of like to be able to go on the flip side of things a little bit because I've learned a lot from being in a relationship and now being single is that it's okay to be single Yeah. actually. So I feel like we jump sometimes from relationship to relationship to relationship because we don't know how to be alone. We don't know how to be just happy with ourselves. And sometimes we feel like we need a partner to complete us right. instead of being whole with ourselves and having them be an addition to your life and not something that completes your life. Yeah. And so that is my tip. And that's something I've had to learn to get comfortable with in the last couple of years is that and something it's I'm okay really proud of you single. for. Yeah, because you're just, I don't know, you as an as an individual, I feel like you've grown so much oh in the gosh, past couple of years. And it's so badass to see how comfortable you are in your skin. Like yeah, you're but so, it definitely did not happen overnight. Right. So it takes just kind of getting comfortable of like being alone, doing like the simplest things on your own around the house too, where you're just like, <laughs> it would be so or cool like if embracing I had a it. like partner here to help me this up or do this or even just helping me cook something and it's like nope I'm I can do this all on my own yeah but it doesn't mean that like one day you don't want no I don't want to like be 90 and alone actually I don't even know that I want to live to be 90 but you know what I mean <laughs> Real talk like anyways nor do I no one wants to go through yeah. life like completely alone but at the same time you should be comfortable enough with yourself to be able to be alone. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely. I feel like that sets yourself up for a better future relationship because you're coming in to it in a better like headspace yeah. as well. So yeah, that's, that's really my cool. tip. It, it's easy. It's comfortable sometimes to just jump from one relationship quickly into the next one because it just feels comfortable to have that person. But sometimes you got to just be a little uncomfy. Yeah. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I like that. All right, question of the week. Yeah, let's get let's get into that. All right, so this is actually a good one. It is, um, what is one thing you wish you could have told yourself as a new grad? And I like that because I feel like that can apply to not even just nursing. Yeah, I think this actually applies anyone to anyone. Graduating and embarking into their career. A new career or something, yeah. What do you got? Um, so I think mine is um, ultimate self-awareness. Um, so it's hard, which is hard. It is hard. Um, so 
you know, I think that was something that I accidentally was doing and I didn't know I was doing it. But, you know, I think anyone going into a new field when it's a professional field, especially when you've you've earned a degree, you've taken an oath, you have put in the time, um, you're still new. Regardless of, you know, you get you got your your diaper on, you got your diaper rash. So I think it's a little bit of coming to it with humble and open eyes and ears and um, just self-awareness of what you you know and you don't know when to ask questions. You know, I think one in doubt, if you have any thought in your head that pops up with a question mark, ask the question. I think self-awareness is huge because I will say for myself, I don't think I gained self-awareness until I left the NICU seven years into my career. Right. I think it took me that long to really, even though I feel like I was a good nurse, strong, knowledgeable, like good work ethic, all of these great character traits, it took until starting into a completely different field to really humble myself and take a step back and be self-aware of my actions and what I say and what I do. So that's not something that you just come to the table with. It honestly takes a lot of conscious effort. And I don't think if I could have told myself even going into the NICU that advice, I think that would have been helpful to me. So yeah, I, I do actually, like that a lot. That's similar. Okay. So I think I came into the NICU very exceptionally humble, but then you get comfortable. I don't think I had a true dose of that until like you, I left the NICU as well, where I was like, whoa, you know, how many things I don't know or mm-hmm. I don't understand. And it's not even just about patient populations, it's about how things work, how things process. Like healthcare in general, um, other things that are out there that people are struggling with, nurses, other healthcare providers, like having some humility. And I think just the ultimate self-awareness of like you in your in your place of being a provider and, you know, how you're affecting everyone around you, you know, the positive touch that you can have on the world. But just, you know, ultimately like being very self-aware. I think that's kind of my my I tip. think mine is to never stop being curious. I love that. Because we are lifelong learners mm-hmm. and we will never know it all. That is something I did not realize. Yeah. Honestly, when I was in nursing school, I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to pass boards da, 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 and be done. Yeah. And then I'll, I'll learn on the job. And then mm-hmm. once I learn everything and then I'm done. But and I also said I never go back to, back to school. And here, here we are. are. <laughs> so just always be curious. Yeah. Keep an open mind and kind of look forward to what's next. Like what is how can I grow? Yeah. Never stop growing. Never stop learning. That's my advice. Yeah. That's a really, really good one. I think, yeah. And just, well, so here's the thing too. We're in the medical field, right? Ultimately, this is, this is medical and we're always changing. I think, and that's like actually perfect for today's episode because yeah, things have changed dramatically, dramatically in healthcare this year and none of us were prepared for it. And now we have this groundbreaking scientific um, breakthrough with this new mRNA vaccine that is the first time that we're really seeing this delivered, administered on this broad scale. And even in the healthcare community, there's a little bit of back and forth and hesitation about this vaccine, which is why we have the perfect guest today to kind of talk about it. So yeah, so let's let's dive into it. So who do we have on today? So we have um, Dr. Cedric, but um, we like to call him Dr. Jamie Rutland. So he is a pulmonary and critical care MD. He is the owner of West Coast Lung, um, private practice, vice president of the Association for Healthcare Social Media, national spokesperson for the Lung Association. He has a YouTube channel called Medicine Deconstructed, where he has amazing educational videos. You can honestly 
go there and learn so much. I was scrolling through um, this week and yeah. I'm blown away about his ability to be able to teach and break down really high level concepts into a way that is easy for us to understand. Yeah, which is why we wanted to get him on today. Yeah. And we, he's, he's working front lines with COVID patients. He's as a pulmonologist and in critical care in Southern California is hit very hard right now. He is all things knowledgeable on COVID. Right this now. is his specialty, which is why we really want to get him on. Sam and I started following him during the heat of the pandemic. And, you know, this is that's when we discovered him. And I, I can honestly tell you guys that something that I really loved about him was was just what Sam was highlighting is how much he breaks down medicine and science. And his and passion for teaching. Very passionate about teaching. So today, I feel like you're going to be walking into Dr. Jamie Rutland's classroom. You guys sit down and get ready. This is this is one that you're going to you guys are going to learn so much about not only the vaccine, but also the virus, which I think is really important. Understanding how it works on a cellular level. On a cellular level, he's going to deep dive for you. Um, he, he's really gets in there to the nitty gritty. And I think that's that's what we need to you need to hear and understand. I think the understanding and providing you with the knowledge for that. So um, his perspective on the his medical practice. He is a hustler, you guys. He's on YouTube. He's on Instagram. He has his own private practice. He has a beautiful family. He's a husband, a father. So he's very relatable and he's very common sense. Like the things that he does and he shares his life. And um, I don't know, just I think everything about him as a guest today is just going to really, really, really be, I don't know, he's the perfect person to have on today. Let's get into it because I'm right. super excited to have you here. So, all right. So, all right. without further ado, you guys, let's kick let's it off. Get in. All right. So, I got to know, like, right off the bat, how much is Bill Gates paying you to be here today with us and to talk about the vaccine? You know, let me tell you something. If Bill Gates was paying me to be here today, I wouldn't be sitting at this table with you. Ooh, I would be that... spending that money out on the beach or something. Valid. Right. valid Very valid. I got the vaccine. This we morning, we so just had to, you know, right away. <laughs> like, let's just jump in there, get yeah. get to the good stuff. So, okay. So for people who don't know you, aren't familiar with you, um, let's hear a little bit about your journey and, you know, where, how you ended up where you are. All right. So this is kind of a long winded story, but I'm going to try to make it short. All right. So my name is Cedric Jamie Rowland and. People throughout my life always say, Ced, Cedric, Jamie, like, which is it? So I grew up in Northern California, in Sacramento, uh, with a single mom and my older brother. Our families were very close. So my grandparents were down the street. My aunts and uncles were in other neighborhoods in Sacramento, but not too far away. All of my cousins are essentially my brothers and sisters, basically, right? But when you look at how I grew up, it just allowed me to be close with everyone. So, you know, I had... My grandparents, my grandfather was like my dad, and we had things. Like, we didn't have, it wasn't like, we weren't rich, but we had the ability to be able to send me to good schools. And mm -hmm. I went to Catholic school my entire life, essentially, until college. And I went to a school called Holy Spirit uh, from kindergarten to eighth grade. And then I went to Jesuit, an all-boy Catholic school, for two years. And I went to Christian Brothers, which was boys and girls, for two years. Um, played basketball in high school. Played a little bit in college. Not really. Practiced a couple times and then just quit. Um, and I quit basketball because we were on the way to Davis one day. My grandfather, this was before I had a car, I was a freshman in college. My grandfather was driving me to Davis and he looked at me and he said, you can't play basketball, 
chase women. And he didn't say women, he said another word. Um, and try to go to medical school. He yeah. said one of those has to go. Um, We're giving up the women. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so I, you know, I actually like really thought long and hard about it. And I like, it's like, I'm not going to the NBA. I'm six feet tall. Like it's not happening. Like done. So quit basketball. Um, and then in college, you know, like, you know what you want to do. Like I'd written down in the fifth grade in sister Anne's class, who was our counselor at Holy Spirit. I wrote down that I wanted to go to medical school and become a doctor or get a scholarship from North Carolina to Georgetown and go to the NBA. That was like, those are my two long-term goals. So I written it down in the fifth grade and it slapped it on my grandparents' refrigerator. So it was always there. So my grandfather was always reminding me. So we're in the middle of college and um, I did okay the first couple of years of college. I wasn't really like crazy studier. But I had a friend, and her name was Vanessa Calderon, and she's an emergency medicine doctor now. Um, she actually taught me, like, how to study. She was like, hey, like, Cedric, like, you got to come here with me. And we, it was a coffee shop called Mishka's in Davis. And she's like, we got to go study. I started drinking coffee, and I literally started to sit down and start studying. And then I just noticed that, like, for me, I could study for about 30 to 45 minutes. And like, I can remember a bunch of stuff and learn a bunch of stuff. Um, but then I had to take a big break. So, you know, I had some issues, some learning disabilities there. And I knew that then, but I developed strategies to cope with them. Mm -hmm. So I really learned how to study and I started to do really well. Um, and then I took the MCAT, applied to medical school. You know, the first round, I just kind of withdrew my application. Second round, I got into a couple of schools and I ended up going to University of Iowa. Um, University mm -hmm. of Iowa was probably the best thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. um, when I interviewed there, they had a couple of different family practice doctors that were interviewing me. And I remember the interview. And um, when I left, I was like, I want to come here. Like, there was no doubt in my mind I wanted to come there. I also interviewed at Howard in Washington, D.C. And when I left, when I was leaving Iowa, I made one quick walk through downtown Iowa City. Uh, for those that are listening, Iowa City is like, was voted many times the number one party school in the country. <laughs> and Iowa City is like a crazy place. Yeah. Um, and I remember walking through uh, downtown Iowa City and I walked on this one sidewalk and I swear to you, and I'm just saying this because like, I'm a real, like I'm just being real. Like I'm not going <laughs> to sit here and sugarcoat anything. But I walked past this girl and up to that point in my life, it was like the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, Psh, I'm coming to Iowa. Like I said, <laughs> right then and there, made. I was like, I'm so. coming here, right? The first letter said that I was number 104 on the out-of-state wait list. So I didn't get in right away. So I sat there for a minute. And I was just like, and I remember I was at my ex-girlfriend's house at the time, uh, Jen. And I was at her house in Stockholm. And I opened this letter. My aunt opened the letter for me. And I sat there and I was just like, man, what am I going to do? God, they put 104. I just didn't like the concept of being like a number, right? Mm -hmm. So I said at that time, screw it. Like, I'm going to call them. So I called them like every day just to say like, what's up? And the goal was for them to at least know my name, right? That was the goal. So I started to make these phone calls. And then I would learn Annette's name. And I'd say, hey, Annette, what's going on? You know, how are things? I was checking in. Where am I on the list? And then she was like, oh, you're number 91, then I made another phone call and I was like, oh, you're number 75. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm still kind of far away. And then I met Linda and I was like, hey, Linda, how are things going? And she's like, oh, we're good. I just want to let you know, you know, you're number like 69. And then I was number 34. I went from like 69 to like 34. Like, and I was like, huh, this is a real thing. 
And it was about three weeks before school was going to get started matriculating. And then I kept calling and Linda and Annette. And then I met Penny and I would continue to just generate conversation. I don't know if that had anything to do with the fact that I was moving up this list Networking. pretty rapidly. Yeah. So I get there and then I was number four and I was like, holy crap. And then after I was number four, you know, the next day I was like number one on the out-of-state wait list. And I was like, oh my God, this is like real, right? Um, and then the next day I got a phone call from Iowa. And when Iowa called, Iowa said, Jamie. And I said, yes. And she said, guess what? And I was like, I'm in. And she's like, you're in. And I was like, I'll see you next week, right? So like, it was so weird when I think about it now. Like that's, that was my goal. My goal was for them to get to know my name. And when Linda called, she said, Jamie. She didn't say number 104, right? She Mm -hmm. didn't say this number. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that had anything to do with me making these phone calls every day. But all I can say is like, you know, when you travel throughout life, I think one of the most important things is for people to, for you to leave a lasting impression, for people to like know who you are, right? And so the way you do that is through conversation. You know, one of the things that gets lost at least a little bit in social media is mm-hmm. the conversation, right? Everybody's posting and commenting and that's great. I mean, I think it's awesome. But one of the reasons I do so many lives is because I like to have conversations, right? Yeah. And yeah, I'm having a conversation with myself and I'm also having a conversation with people. So that was kind of like a major lesson I learned. And then once I got to Iowa, and I'm probably being really long-winded with this story, but- We like stories. We like stories. Yeah. Once I got to Iowa, and I remember pulling up, and my mom went with me, and my uncle went with me from the white coat ceremony. My grandfather couldn't travel because he was, like, ill. But once I got into medical school, like, it was weird. You could see, like, the, like, calmness in his eyes. Like, he just didn't have his, like, um attention as much like it was like mm-hmm. all right like this was the youngest of the first generation of grandchildren like this mm-hmm. is this was his goal he accomplished it like i'm at really peace cool. right mm-hmm. and the last thing he ever wrote anybody was to me and then like on that card it was like um you know he just said hey let me hear from you from time to time um and just remember to be kind um and then uh, on the, he wrote this like little scripture and it said like, what does it say? It's like to him, to, to him that hath shall be given to him that hath not shall be taken away. Right. Even that, which he seems to have, which is still weird. Cause I still kind of analyze like what that really means. Um, but anyway, it was just the last thing he ever wrote anybody. Um, and, um, then like a month after I got that, like he ended up getting sick and then he passed away. He had emphysema, a lung disease, which is like dead lung. And he had developed small bowel obstruction, went to the operating room, got that fixed, but they couldn't wean him from the vent. Now I'm kind of like, man, they could have traked him, they could have pegged him, they could have done all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but like, I understand, like, he just didn't want that, right? And he was, he was done, like, he was at peace, right? He was 85. Um, and that's okay. It was 112705 when he passed. And then, you know, my first year of medical school, this is my first year of medical school when he passed. Um, he was, he had, we had a funeral and, uh, my mom was like, hey, do you want to come home? You know, and it was finals week. And I was like, you know, like, I've really got to stay here. I got to take these tests. Like, I don't really know if I can come home. Like, I just, I just can't. And um, I didn't go home. And it was like this. 
it left this like lasting impression. Like, so my girlfriend at the time went to the funeral for me, whatever. My little sister or cousin read the um, piece that I wrote for him uh, at the funeral. But like, I never got this like closure. Mm -hmm. But as a result of not getting this closure, you know, I became a pulmonary critical care doctor. And so it's like, I'm always chasing a bedside I'm never going to catch, right? And so it's just like, that's what I do when I'm in the ICU. And like, I can't help but think about like, what would I have wanted to hear? What would I, um, how would I be feeling if this was my grandfather? Like I try to put myself in their Mm -hmm. position. And like, of course, I'm speaking from a position of being selfish because I'm me and I know what I want to hear. But at the same time, I just feel like the way that I am approaching the bedside is how my grandfather would have taught me to approach a bedside and how I would have like wanted to hear whatever the doctor was trying to say. So I try to be a teacher at the bedside. And that's kind of where my um, education started, even as early as being a medical student at Iowa. So pulmonology, though, yeah, was that maybe influenced by your experience with your grandpa and his lung disease, or when you were in med school? At what moment were you like, yeah, lungs? Great question. Jam. So my grandparents had a lot to do with it. My grandma also had a trach. Okay, uh, for oh, like fifty years. Oh, yeah. right? she wow. had a thyroid gorder taken out and black. Right, she's a black lady, and you know, in the forties, fifties, like you couldn't get operations. Right, nobody cared. Like you were black. So she ended up getting a back alley surgeon, cut her recurrent laryngeal nerve, her vocal cords were paralyzed, pregnant mm. with twins, my mom and her sister. She couldn't breathe, she couldn't breathe, couldn't take a big deep breath. So they put a trach in, and my grandma said, after the deliveries, just leave it. I can breathe so much better, right? And my grandma's also blind, was also blind too, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and she was an author. She wrote over 40 books. But um, my experience with her trach, my experience with my grandfather having emphysema allowed me to understand about lung disease. And then in med school, uh, like my third, fourth year, I rotated through all the internal medicine subspecialties, cardiology, GI, pulmonary critical care. Pulmonary critical care was the only subspecialty in which I didn't have to let go of anything else. I still had to know cardiology. I still had to Mm -hmm. know um, infectious disease. I still had to know GI. I had to know all that stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Which is like what I wanted, right? And then the imaging aspect and the procedural aspect, doing some interventions and all that, like all of that. Like I can read CTs, I can read chest x-rays, I can see outpatients, I can see inpatients, I can do procedures. I have ADD. <laughs> yeah. Do I got to be able to do multiple yeah. things. Right? I got to multitask. And um, yeah, so that's where it's, where it's gotten me, right? So then that actually makes you the perfect person to talk to about COVID because critical care mm-hmm. and yeah. pulmonology mm-hmm. and we're in Southern California, mm-hmm. which is blowing up right now. Mm-hmm. So what are you even like seeing in the inpatient setting? You know, when COVID came out in March, February here, basically, and I looked at that and to me, I said this then, I was like, this is not an infectious disease, right? Infection meaning like the bacteria is growing in you, growing in you, growing in you, and then, you know, you're getting really, really sick. This is more of like a bystander. The virus is there, and as a result of the inflammatory response that is responding, like you get really sick. And that's what it is, right? It's like interstitial lung disease on steroids, autoimmune lung disease, all these people who are sick. And so when you look in their lungs, you can see all of this inflammation. And in fact, when you do bronchoscopies, when you do biopsy and you look under the microscope, you can see the many different types of immune cells that are there trying to do what they're supposed to do, 
but they just don't leave. They just stay there. And it causes this profound amount of inflammation. And so early on, I was like, we have to inhibit this cell communication, like in some way, shape or form. We have to not allow the white blood cells to get there, right? How we treat it best when you look at the data is people that get that type of cell communication inhibition early are people who do better. People who um, are on oxygen, right, that get decadron or dexamethasone, which is a steroid to calm down inflammation, inhibits interleukin-1, interleukin-2, these are all cell communication type of molecules, they, their mortality is better, right? There was, just, there was a paper published a couple weeks ago, eh, maybe a week and a half, on baricitinib, which is a jack inhibitor. Uh, Janus kinase are certain enzymes that are activated in the nucleus of your body to kind of get the genes going. So you start producing cell communication molecules. When you combine baricitinib with remdesivir, the popular antiviral medication, you can see that your clinical outcomes improve. But when you're in the hospital, everybody thinks objective and outcomes, which I think is great. I think you should do that, right? And I'm an evidence-based guy, but I'm also a cellular physiology guy, and I fully understand that as a result of cell communication, disease happens, right? It's not just, you know, the presence of infection obviously starts things. The presence of molecules, the presence of pathogens obviously gets things started. But understanding that this pathogen is there and the potential to have a response is viable. It's actually there. If you can inhibit that, and not allow that to happen, people are going to have better outcomes. So people with COVID, they defined the severity of illness, and then they tried medicines, right? So they're like, okay, you're severe, so you're going to get this medicine. Not fully grasping the fact that you're already past that point. Right. If you have mm -hmm. severe COVID, you're on a ventilator, you have all these infiltrates, neutralizing the virus with things such as convalescent plasma, right? And the reason you give convalescent plasma is because there's molecules within convalescent plasma that will inhibit the binding of the spike protein to the cell, which is how the virus gets in. You got to understand that like, that's not going to work. You've already missed the boat. You've already right. missed the boat. You're behind the like, ball. What you're fighting is your own inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. You are not fighting the virus anymore. Mm -hmm. You're not. And so I always thought that quite frankly, that was stupid. Mm -hmm. And I still feel strongly about that. It's about early yeah. recognition. Mm -hmm. It's about intervening before you get to that point, knowing that the load of the virus is going to activate the inflammatory response more, right? So the higher load of virus you have, the more your inflammatory response is going to be activated. So if you can inhibit that load early, that's great. So I think that you have to have some foresight. And I fully understand medicine is expensive. I get it. Like, I, I understand. think we're kind of dropping the ball. So in my personal experience, my stepdad passed away from COVID um, after fighting it for five months. And he was never vented, but very close. And it was a very long journey. But he wasn't hospitalized until day seven when he started having shortness of breath. That's the median day for hospitalization. Exactly. And, they're, and of course, back then, they're also telling people don't come to the hospital right. until you're short of breath. Right. And, but by then, like you kind of said, we're now doing all the things too late. Right. <laughs> so yeah. we're starting remdesivir, we're starting steroids, right. but he's already mm -hmm. short of breath. He's already now maxed out on 60 liters of high flow in the ER. Mm -hmm. And we're chasing our tail at that point. Right. And then you see, you know, people like 
um, in politics that get diagnosed and they have no symptoms yet and they're getting top of the line medical care starting like from diagnosis. Ground zero, right. which was absolutely genius. So two things. So one- But then they never got like sick. So I'm just- Genius, yeah. right. Yeah. So two things. One- Why are we not doing that? <laughs> again, the problem with medicine, I'm gonna say this again, is that we do not do anything until people have physical manifestations mm -hmm. of illness. That's number one. That's an issue. We don't know how to understand who's going to have those issues, right? And so people say don't go to the hospital because they don't know what it means because most people don't look at the cellular communication of illness, right? People just look at outcomes, which is what I think is dumb because they're just waiting until the end, right? And they're looking at you. Right. I'm trying to say, look inside the person, look mm -hmm. at those cells. A disease is ever evolving. The cells are going to see it first. And they're so, 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 so tiny that until you have an abundance of response or an abundance of cells doing something you don't want them to do, you're not going to have this product of disease. The and symptoms. so, yeah. And so I agree with you in that. Yeah, we should be doing something early. But the problem is genetically, we don't know how to distinguish between people to understand who's going to have this bad response and who's not. Right. And so my solution is, yeah, you're going to have to be expensive. People who have symptoms, you got to be able to offer them a test early, number one. And then number two is like if they have a little runny nose or they have a cough or they have something like that, if they're not asymptomatic, then you got to do something. Right. From the very beginning. But the problem with America then was like testing and who's going to get tested and where you're going to go for tests. Like I, I didn't figure out my testing situation until two months ago. Yeah, and We couldn't same. even get tested back in March if people like legitimately thought they yeah. had it. I don't know a single healthcare provider that they were testing throughout this whole thing without being in an actual research, like if, unless they were collecting data and research. The only time I ever even got tested was over the summer I was enrolled in a study for like healthcare providers from the ER and transport team. And they were testing us every week just to see about healthcare exposure. Yeah. And then that ended and I actually missed so it. So <laughs> something that I love and cause I started following you early on, I don't know how I discovered you on Instagram and something that I think you're really good at is breaking down complex concepts. And you're just, you're honestly a great teacher. You're great. I mean, I can just, you know, so my question being, can you break down mRNA vaccine? Yeah. Like what is an yeah. mRNA vaccine? Okay. So what I want everybody to do right now, if you're listening to the podcast, is I want you guys to just close your eyes. Okay. And you are going to be a cell. Okay. You're a human cell. When you draw a human cell, say you just imagine it as a circle. Within that circle, there's multiple organelles. Okay. There's something called ribosomes. There's something called endoplasmic reticulum. There's something called mitochondria. And then you have this space on the inside called the cytoplasm. And then you have what's called a nucleus. In the cell nucleus, that's kind of the instructions for life. Within that cell nucleus, you have your DNA. And everybody's heard that term DNA. So what happens naturally? So when the body needs to do something or make something, all right, what happens is that DNA just like your fly, if you're a man, it unzips itself. A molecule comes in and reads the code, right? It reads the code after it's unzipped. So after it's unzipped, you get this code read, and that's called 
transcription, all right? So this code gets read. And as the code is getting read, that DNA is basically being transcripted into what's called RNA, right? DNA is double-stranded. So there's two sides of it, okay? You're going to read one side. You're going to match that up. You're going to make RNA. Now, RNA, after, it, after it's transcribed from the DNA, right, that RNA is now a single-stranded molecule. It's going to end up traveling to what's called a ribosome, okay? And that's where the protein is going to be made. So based on this code, right, it makes amino acids that are stacked on top of one another. Now, there's more stuff, like sugars get added and things like that. But essentially, you go from DNA to RNA to protein. And then your body recognizes the protein and puts it where it needs to go. Okay? Period. Now, mRNA is essentially the RNA that gets translated into protein. Okay? So as you can imagine, your DNA is a big, long molecule. And then it turns into RNA. And then there's little enzymes and things that will cut it all up and make it into an mRNA. It's besides the point. That mRNA gets translated in the ribosome and turns into protein. All right? Okay. Now, you have that concept down. DNA, RNA, protein. Done. All right. Now, what I'm going to explain to you is how the immune system works. Because I think that this concept is important. Within your body, there are white blood cells. You guys have all heard of this. There are multiple subsets of white blood cells, okay? And they all have names. Just like streets have names, white blood cells have names. So within your body, there are white blood cells. There's different subsets of white blood cells, right? When you think about these white blood cells, right, they all have names. Neutrophils, macrophages, T cells, B cells, natural killer cells, basophils, eosinophils mast cells, innate lymphoid cells. These are all different types of white blood cells that all have a job to do, okay? When they see something that is abnormal in their body, whether it's a protein, whether it's a pathogen, they look at it. Once they look at it, they're able to understand its structure and they create a defense system against its structure. Not the whole thing, but a piece of it, right? It's kind of like looking at a Range Rover, recognizing the wheel, Okay, and saying, oh, if I see that wheel, I'm going to be able to bind to it next time I'm going to recreate some molecules that allow me to latch onto it so I can get rid of it because I don't think it should be here. Right? That is how your immune system essentially works. Right? It generates a defense system based on a piece of a virus, a bacteria, a fungus, whatever. Now, back to mRNA. When you think about the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, okay? So what we've understood since 2003, by the way, we know what SARS looks like. When you think about coronavirus, there are seven coronaviruses that infect human beings, four of which, 229E, NL63, OC43, and HKU1. These four coronaviruses infect human beings all the time. They cause the common cold in about 30% of adults, right? When I say coronavirus, there's a structure to that. It's an RNA virus. It has a structure. If you were to draw a circle on a piece of paper in front of you, and then you drew four different shapes on the lines of that circle, 
Those are the structural proteins of coronavirus. So structural proteins of coronavirus are called nucleocapsid, envelope, membranous, and the famous spike protein. Within the RNA that's encoded in the viron, in the virus, there are 16 non-structural proteins, a bunch of open reading frames. It doesn't matter. What's important is the structural proteins. That is the proteins on its membrane that our body is going to recognize first. We knew in 2003, 2002, that the spike protein on SARS-CoV-1 was the protein that bound to our cells. That's the protein that connects to our cells. It binds to cells in the lung, called the alveolar type 2 cells. It binds to cells in the small intestine. It binds to cells on the endothelium. That is the lining of your blood vessels. Endothelium is the lining of your blood vessels. Remember, your blood vessels are carrying blood, nutrition, to all of your organs. We knew that 18 years ago that the spike protein was the issue. That's what bound to our cell receptors, the ACE2R, and all these cells. Now, since we know that, obviously what we want to do is not allow the spike protein to bind to our cells because that initiates infection. Not only does it initiate infection, but what else does it initiate? Response. And what did I say earlier? I said the response to the infection is the issue. The response to the presence of the virus is the issue because the immune system starts tripping. Even though it's a coronavirus that we get infected with every single year, the spike protein latches on so hard for SARS-CoV-2 that our immune system really starts tripping. It starts to get anxious. It starts to recruit other types of white blood cells to an area. When you think about the lung, the lung is essentially a bunch of balloons stacked on top of one another, and there's pipes that lead to these balloons. That's the lung. Really simple. Balloons are normally full of air, okay? If those balloons are now full of fluid and cells, air can't do shit you're not going to be able to pull out oxygen from the air mm -hmm. to get into your bloodstream. It just doesn't work. All right. Now we have these concepts. We have the concept of what the lung looks like. We have the concept of how the immune system works. We have the concept of DNA to RNA to protein. Now, mRNA vaccines is how they work. It is effing fascinating. I love it. I'm <clears> and, been so obsessed. Right. Out. I science, was just science. injected with it. Not even an hour ago, two yeah. hours. And we got, we got it on ours Thursday. Three, four days right. ago. Yeah, for three days. Here's ago. what we've done. We know what the spike protein looks like. We talked about it. Because we know what the spike protein looks like, we can reverse engineer what RNA would look like. We can reverse, even engineer even further, what the DNA would look like. Okay? But let's not go there. So we know what the RNA looks like. So we inject your body with the mRNA that codes for the spike protein. What happens? The mRNA ends up getting inside your cell. Now, this is all proprietary to each company, all right? And how it gets inside the cell is the cell is essentially surrounded by fat. So you get to surround this mRNA with fat, right? We call it lipid nanomolecules. So for all you saying like, oh, you're injecting lipid nanotechnology, <laughs> you're right, lipid nanomolecules. So we're injecting little fat droplets. <laughs> not a like nano iPod. Yeah, not a nano iPod. <laughs> Chill. And what's funny is I read this, this tweet the other day and it said like, inject me with a nano iPod. I don't care. I just want to get drunk at Olive Garden again. Like, yeah, I thought so it was funny. Too. So you have these little nanoparticles, you inject the mRNA. So what do you think happens, right? 
So we already taught you this. I taught you this literally 10 minutes ago. So the mRNA gets inside the cell. What does it do? Come on, think about it. What does it do? Oh, that's right. He said something about ribosomes. Yeah, yeah. The ribosomes are going to translate that mRNA into a protein. (laughs) But what happens? Your body knows that this protein is not yours. And your body starts to take pieces of this protein, the spike protein. And then it engulfs the spike protein. It puts them in what's called an MHC molecule. It doesn't matter. Puts it on a flag. And that flag stick gets raised outside of the cell. What does it do? Since your body knows that protein's abnormal, the white blood cells come over and they're like, what is that? I don't like it. Let's generate a defense system against it. So your white blood cells come over, your B cells, your T cells, your dendritic cells. And they're like, all right, this is what it looks like. Yo, B cell, I want you to make some antibodies that can bind to this. Yo, T cell, I want you to make some receptors that can bind to this. And then memory Bs and memory Ts, you need to remember how to do this shit because if it shows up again, you got to be able to generate a response that's efficient and that inhibits this virus from being able to do its damage, right? And it's all directed at one protein, the spike protein. That's how this works. So once your immune system recognizes these pieces of the protein, it's able to create a defense system, a defensive strategy that allows your body to know what to do when it shows up. Because again, people always ask this question. Mm -hmm. You know, they think that immunity is like a force field. It's not a force field. It's not a closed door. Just because you have immunity doesn't mean you can't get infected again. All immunity means is I recognize this and I'm going to be able to generate an efficient response. That's it. You've heard about six or seven people that had a worse response the second time than they did the first time. Unfortunate. People that had an unfortunate second worst infection. It happens. I apologize. I hope that they feel better. But immunity does not mean you can't get it. Immunity just means you generate an inflammatory response. What you're hearing all over the news is people are saying, wait two weeks, wait 10 days. Where does that come from? Generally speaking, when you get infected with something, it takes seven to 10 days to manufacture antibodies against it. That is, antibodies are the molecules that are created by the immune system that allow you to neutralize infection. That is, they bind to the pathogen before the pathogen can do its damage, period. All right, the age-old question of how long is immunity going to last? This is such a great question. The way that I typically look at this is usually the more violent or virulent the virus, the more effective the vaccine. Since we know that SARS-CoV-2 uses the spike protein to bind to our cells, we created a vaccine that is directed at teaching the immune system how to defend itself against the spike protein. That is, you have antibodies and B cells and T cells that recognize the spike protein and can continue to recognize it early and clear the virus quicker. In terms of how long that immunity is going to last, you know, we really don't know. But when you look at evidence from SARS-CoV-1, at least in people who were infected by SARS-CoV-1, when you draw their blood and you look for T cells and B cells and antibodies, there is evidence that these people still have immunity 17 years later. So it's interesting because we did look at that. So one would wonder if once you vaccinate against that spike protein, if you do have immunity that lasts quite a while, we don't know if the virus mutates like influenza does every year, but it's a very good question. But again, my opinion is you probably have immunity that lasts a while. People ask questions like, well, why don't they generate vaccines for the common cold? Well, because people don't really die from the common cold. There's no reason to put that much money into something that your body can defeat on its own. 
Why don't they make vaccines for X or Y? Same thing. If you have adequate treatments, there's no reason to generate money into that disease. There's just no reason to put money into that disease. Well, why don't we have a vaccine for HIV? I understand that. Same thing. We have treatments that when you take them, the degree of the virus that's in your bloodstream can't even be measured by anything. Your viral load is zero. Therefore, you don't have it. The treatment's effective. There's no reason to put money into that. What people need to understand is that we are manipulating the immune system to allow your body to develop tools that minimize your risk of developing severe disease. Maybe not severe infection or infection in general, but developing severe disease because that's what puts you in the hospital is severe disease. If you get a vaccine like I did this morning and I get a cough or I get a headache or I get a fever, I don't care. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to. And in fact, when you look at the trials, you look at the degree of immunity that is generated, the younger you are, the more likely you are to have those natural reactions to having a vaccine. I'm not going to call them side effects. In my mind, there's Guess almost... What your body works. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a working body. It's working. Yeah, there's almost no such thing as a side effect. People are worried about this Bell's palsy. Well, the Bell palsy in the patients in the Moderna trial that had... The patients that had Bell's palsy, right? There is a prevalence of Bell's palsy in the general population. I've had it. Yeah. So I've had it. Twice. There you go. On the mm-hmm. opposite side of my face. <laughs> my neurologist is like, who are you? You have to have a brain tumor. Right. And I didn't. CT confirm or MRI confirmed. But yeah. Yeah. There's a general prevalence. The prevalence. And I still got the vaccine. There, exactly. And I'm you like, did not so far. So far. I'd so look, far. See? I mean, we got 30 days to really figure yeah, it we'll out. See, but. but so far I am smiling. <laughs> yeah. And the prevalence of Bell's palsy in the vaccine trials is lower than the prevalence of Bell's palsy in the general population. Yes. So that's not an issue, right? That's, I keep getting asked that about Bell's palsy. Right. And I'm like, you have a right. likelier chance of just naturally acquiring it out in your normal life, completely unrelated. Right. So I think one of the biggest concerns or on people's minds is the speed of the release. Mm. Can you speak to this? Oh, yeah. Right. It was so rushed. Yeah. Why would I do anything mm-hmm. that hasn't been studied and they just... If you're a Googler and you're just getting into this stuff, I understand the question. You're going to say like, oh, normally vaccine development takes 15 years. This one took nine months. Yeah, no, it didn't. Here, here's the issue. Whenever you're making a vaccine, one of the first things you have to know is you have to know the structure of the pathogen, what the virus looks like, what proteins it has, what proteins lead to its virulence, and you have to have a little bit of luck. We know, we already knew what the virus looked like. It looks just like SARS-CoV-1, right? It's 88% homologous to SARS-CoV-1, which means it looks like it. It's like its brother, okay? We already knew that. We knew that 17 years ago. So we're 17 years ahead of where we need to start. Not to mention the fact that we also know the protein that's causing the virulence, the spike protein, and we've already sequenced it. There were three vaccines created for SARS-CoV-1 in 2003. It was like within a year and a half. Like, it's ridiculous. So, of course, we're going to develop this vaccine really quickly. We already know what the virus looks like. We already know the virulence, secondary to the spike protein. And we can already sequence that. So, making a vaccine was simply like, all right, we got to find a way to just give the protein because we don't want to give the inactivated virus because we're not, no, we're not sure if the virus is going to stimulate the inflammatory response like it did, blah, blah, blah. So, they did the safest thing that they thought. So, I understand the question. I get it. I get it. But don't think that science isn't advancing at the same rate as technology, as other technologies. It is. It is. We have a Tesla out there. We got an electric car out there. 
We have all sorts of new types of technologies that make our life easier. It's the same thing in science. Technology is developing at a rapid pace. So how do you speak to like possible quote unquote side effects later? Like because the, the thought being we're getting this now. Obviously, vaccines have been out for X amount of time, but the concern being like down the line, we get more side effects. You're like, what's your thought on that? So, again, the natural reaction to the vaccine is an inflammatory reaction. You're going to have injection site pain. You're going to have headache. You're going to have fatigue. You're going to have fever. By the way, I still feel fine. What people are talking about in terms of natural reactions and effects, you know, you hear about this infertility business. Yes. Yeah, let's go That's there. What we're going to go there. There's a concept that is tr- rings true, and it's called molecular mimicry. All right, I'm going to need you guys to close your eyes again, okay? You imagine you're a cell. We talked about the nucleus. We talked about the organelles in the cell already. The mitochondria and the plasma reticulum, um, the... Um, ribosomes, um, but on the membrane of the cell, there are many different types of proteins. Proteins are essentially amino acids stacked on top of one another, right? There are many different types of amino acids, leucine, arginine, glycine. They all have a particular appearance, but they're all stacked on top of one another. Now, proteins, amino acids are three-dimensional molecules, right? So if they're stacked on top of one another, they're going to conform. They're going to have a three-dimensional shape, okay? They're going to look a certain way. Some molecules look like other molecules, all right? Call this molecular mimicry. So in autoimmune disease, what we think happens is some of the molecules in your body, your immune system, either one, just doesn't tolerate them anymore for some reason. They were exposed to something that looks like that molecule. And then the immune system develops the ability to attack your own body. And that's why you have autoimmune disease. So again, this concept is called molecular mimicry. So maybe a pathogen looks like this molecule. Now, what was said for this infertility business, which is completely untrue, was that the syncytin protein on your placenta. So after a woman gets pregnant, you have a placenta which supports the baby, right? It helps create the blood flow from the mom to the baby. Now, there's a protein in placental development called syncytin. What they're trying to say is that syncytin looks like spike protein. And since it does, you can generate antibodies and T cells against that spike protein that would create an autoimmune disease in a pregnant female, right? It's not true. Because you need to have a certain amount of protein that looks like another cell protein to be able to generate this molecular mimicry. And spike protein and syncytin don't match up. That's one. Two, if that were the case, any woman that got a cold or had coronavirus would lose their baby, right? Because you would attack syncytin. You would attack the placenta. And I just don't think that's the case. Now, an argument can be made and they can say, oh, well, we haven't studied that enough. Okay, it's true. We haven't looked at that enough. We haven't randomized and tested everybody to see when they got a cold when they were pregnant, if they had coronavirus and if they were more likely to lose their child, right? That's a great question that, listen, if it needs to be answered because everybody is concerned about it, I understand it. But that's what we would see. And I know there are plenty of smart people, plenty of smart ob guys who would have thought about that, right? right? Who would say, oh man, my 
pregnant patient lost her baby after she had a cold. I wonder, right? So I'm not completely denying that that can happen because molecular mimicry does happen. But I will sit here and say that at least scientifically, we have no proof that it happens, right? And we've had plenty of people now who are residents and fellows and pulmonary critical care docs and emergency room docs who are pregnant who decided to get the vaccine because the ACOG, what is that, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Mm -hmm. has released a statement saying they should be able to get the vaccine. And maternal fetal medicine. And maternal fetal medicine did as well. Yeah. So what about even, I think we've both seen, Tori and I, a lot of people asking us or commenting things about um, harm to the fetus. Yeah. So again, molecular mimicry does exist. When a fetus is developing, can it have proteins on its cell membranes that look like spike protein? I suppose it could, but again, it would, you would have the same thing. If somebody got coronavirus, a cold when they were pregnant, the fetus would be attacked. I just, I'm not seeing that in terms of the mechanism of action of the mRNA vaccine. And again, this is my opinion because I haven't studied this, but this is my opinion. I cannot see a scientific reason for how the vaccine or receiving the vaccine in a pregnant female would lead to harming the fetus. I just don't see it. I will say this coronavirus. Yeah. So let's, Get your opinion on that. Like so in your pregnant patient. woman yeah. with So pregnant com- females with coronavirus right. have a greater risk of developing the need for the ICU, the need for mechanical ventilation, right. the need for oxygen um, as a result of being pregnant. So we know that people who are pregnant can get really sick. So that's why I think that they should be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, have I seen a bunch of pregnant patients in the ICU? I haven't seen a bunch. I've seen a few. Mm-hmm. It does happen, and I believe we've lost some people. Um, and Tori's seen it on the NICU side. Yeah, we've, of, we've had a couple. Of, have in, you had a couple? In the beginning, I would say it was very limited. Like, we almost, you know, very limitedly in the L&D. I feel like California was like, you know, New York started the, also the surge, NICU, and now we're very seeing limitedly. it. Now, with this particular wave, we're seeing more of it. Yeah. It's just. What yeah. about, like, risk to the developing fetus with a mom positive with COVID. So they did a study and it was 101 babies and it was in Philadelphia. Um, I think, yeah, it was Philadelphia, I think. And the mom had COVID and only three babies possibly had COVID. They didn't mm-hmm. really test positive, but they had some symptoms. Right. So they just mm-hmm. said that they had it. It was like three out of 101 babies. That's very similar. Born to, to 99 mothers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, had it, I talk about this on my YouTube channel, on my pregnancy YouTube channel. I talk about this particular study. So it's definitely there. We'll link that in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. definitely there. So I think, um, you know, I understand the concern, but moms understand that if you do contract SARS-CoV-2. And again, one of the, one of my pet peeves is the nomenclature. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. COVID-19 is a disease. Right. Oh, yeah. So not everybody with SARS CoV two develops COVID nineteen. Right. We say something like eighty percent of people are eighty something are asymptomatic or something like that. So if you're asymptomatic, you don't have COVID nineteen. You had SARS CoV two. That's how I would kind of look at that. That's a great way to break it down. All right. So let's talk peds because Tori peds. and I work in peds, so we are yeah. getting a lot of questions from 
like our families mm. that have immunocompromised children or children with chronic health conditions sure. that are like, hey, how do we keep our kids safe? Yeah. And right. immunization is only approved for 18 for Pfizer. I think 16. 16 yeah. For Moderna. I think it's 16 for both, I thought. Oh, but I'm not sure. One's 18, one's 16, I'm pretty sure. But I think now they're starting to enroll I think Pfizer's 12. 16 then. Okay. I think. And then I think they're I know the trial was starting to yeah. now enroll 12 to 18 yeah. in the clinical trial. Yeah. So um, here's the way that I would think about children in general. And I have an episode on YouTube again where I talked about kids and coronavirus. Now, when you look at the prevalence of corona or COVID-19, the disease that causes or the disease, look at the prevalence of COVID-19 in kids. It's way less prevalent than it is in adults. Okay, we know that. It's like, what's a specific number? Oh, my God. It's like it's seven per 100,000. What is it? It's fairly, it's low. It's I have that number somewhere in my phone. Anyway, it's, it's really, really low. Um, where it's like 164 per 100,000 adults have it. It's like seven or four or something per 100,000 kids. But it doesn't mean the kids don't get sick. But you want to ask the question as to why don't kids get sick from uh, SARS-CoV-2. Here's why. Remember earlier I had said there's seven coronaviruses, right? MERS-CoV, SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, HKU-1, NL-63, OC-43, and 229 All right? They're all just names. Kids get sick all the damn time. Mm -hmm. So they're just passing coronavirus likely to one another all the damn time, which means what? So they're going to generate antibodies towards SARS-CoV-2, nucleocapsid, membranous protein, envelope protein, the non-structural proteins all the time. So they probably have some degree of protection because they're always around each other and they were sick all the time, passing infection to one another. So I think that's why you're seeing less. And in fact, when you look at the data and you look at the immunology of it, you can see that there too. You can see that they have a stronger immune response and they have the presence of some of these antibodies there. It made me wonder like, well, then do their teachers? Because their teachers are with them every day. I actually right. kind of wonder that. I Maybe would have love, more immunity than right. even we, you know. I don't than know. even I us. From yeah. working in the NICU to joining pediatric emergency oh. transport and leaving my clean, sterile NICU bubble to being exposed to all the peds things. I spent the whole first same. year on transport sick. Last year when I went to critical care float pool, same thing. Seriously, I got the so first sick. week that I left the NICU and yeah. went full-time transport, mm -hmm. I got sick on my very second shift. And I was like, well, this is a good look. I'm calling in sick my first week of work. <laughs> right. Great. I was taken out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but that's but that's real, right? That's a real, that's a real thing. That's what's really happened. So when you think about kids, like that's why they don't get as infected. In terms of protection, you just want to make sure that they have certain vitamins in them, zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, make sure they're out in the sun or whatever. Um, and then, you know, at least with kids, you're going to have to social distance. You're going to have to bathe them more. My kids hate bathing. They hate taking a shower. Um, but kids, you know, when you're worried about this, you got to bathe them, right? Because I'm not going to lie. Like my kids were still going to soccer practice up until maybe two weeks ago. Um, wearing a mask, obviously, but coming home, washing their hands and all that jazz. But, you know, I got to worry about these things, right? Because, again, you know, we're going through some stuff right now. And so you're going to have to make sure that the kids are as sterile, at least as they can be, because kids are probably passing coronavirus to people. Um, and they're not having any symptoms, but their elderly grandparents are probably having symptoms. Because I think it's the lo the longer you have not been exposed to coronavirus, probably the more likely you are to have a severe infection because your immune system hasn't seen it in such a long time. Mm -hmm. So in your household, just curious, like what, do you, what extra things do you guys do to just stay a little extra? Like 
healthy. Yeah. So in the, oh, to stay healthy. Yeah. Or to like, well, I got my gym in the garage. I make the kids do pull-ups and stuff. Um, we do, you know, my wife will make them eat their vegetables. We do have like multivitamins for them. Um, Mm -hmm. so my other like tangenting off of that prevention, I think this is something that, um, we definitely did not talk enough about in throughout this whole process about how do you make yourself healthy Mm -hmm. or maximize your health Mm. to help potentially fight off the virus? What are your thoughts? Any virus, any virus. So here is, you know, kind of like Rutland's rules for um, health. Rutland's rules. I love those. And, you know, I I gave this lecture actually yesterday. I wrote a big lecture on kind of this topic, right? The way the body works is your body's always in constant inflammation. It's always exposed to something out in the environment, right? If you go outside right now, you take a big deep breath of air in, you're snatching the environment that surrounds you. You're bringing it into your body, into your alveoli where your blood vessels are running, your red blood cells are running, and your body has an opportunity to react to it. Vitamins, right, vital amines, are molecules that allow your cells to regenerate the opportunity to be effective in terms of creating a defense system and tolerating the environment. In other words, if you don't have enough of vitamins in your bloodstream, you will be more inflamed, right? People have more asthma exacerbations, all that jazz, the less vegetables they eat, COPD exacerbations, all of that. Um, And it's probably directly related to that because vitamins are antioxidants. They allow cells the ability to regenerate and use electrons. Doesn't matter, I don't wanna get too scientific here, Um, but that's what they do. They allow white blood cells specifically to be efficient. That means that they can go in, do their thing and bounce, right? If you don't have enough vitamin D in, there's vitamin D receptors on white blood cells. They, the white blood cells likely go in, stay, chill out, and they don't like ever really leave, right? When you look at these patients with SARS-CoV-2, patients with low vitamin D levels seem to do the worst, right? And so people would say, oh, well, that means I should be taking vitamin D. It's a therapy. It doesn't mean it's a therapy. It just means that if you're deficient, it's going to be a problem. So just make sure you're not deficient. We had my wife's vitamin D level measure the other day. It's 60. So she's cool. I was surprised by that. I take probably 10,000 units of vitamin D every three or four days, and I take 100 milligrams of zinc. Why do I take zinc? Zinc inhibits viral RNA polymerase uh, period, which is a polymerase that SARS-CoV-2 has. So, you know, does it mean it's therapy? No, it just means that if it's around, it may help. Or if you're deficient, it's probably going to be an issue. So that's one thing. The other thing is 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day. 20 to 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise a day allows blood flow, allows your immune system to kind of get to work, your immune system becomes more efficient and you're less likely to be sick, right? So 20 to 30 minutes. So I got the Peloton and my gym. So I do the Peloton twice a day and I go, I go to my gym in the garage um, usually once a day, probably six times a week, right? Can I interrupt and ask a question about your thoughts on gym closures? Ah, so, oh, yeah. so I mean, I'm a power lifter, so this is like a big thing in my world of people having very strong opinions about gym closures. So yeah. So get your thoughts. Gym closures. So gyms are a little bit different than grocery stores, a little bit different than restaurants. Because in the gym, you're working hard. You're right. breathing mm-hmm. hard, mm-hmm. right? We all know that this virus can aerosolize. That's just a fancy way of saying that the molecule that it travels in when it leaves your mouth is really small. So it sticks around in the air a little bit longer. Right? The heavier the molecule, droplets the more likely it's going to drop to the ground, right? 
So I actually felt that gym closures were probably necessary. Maybe you don't have to close them so much as you limit the amount of people that are in them and you make sure they have the appropriate space. So maybe they're like at a tenth of capacity because you know how gyms are. Gyms can be effing crazy at certain times of day. Eight o'clock in the morning, 4.30, 5.30 in the evening is when they're crazy. If you had the same capacity that you would have at like one or two, gyms could probably be open somewhat safely. I can't prove that, but you do know when it's hot and sweaty and you're running around in the gym and you're working hard and there's 150 people there waiting for different equipment, it's going to be a little bit hard, right? And people are just going to go to the gym whether they feel good or not. Um, but I can see the other side where it's like, well, this is the same argument as a grocery store or as what well. I, I get it. Right. And as not promoting health, I get that, too. But you do have to limit the amount of people that are in there just because of the breathing so hard and the sweating and having so many different exposures that could happen there. Right. Guys go to the gym to meet women. Guys go to the Please gym to meet that. guys. <laughs> women go to the gym to meet women. Like, right, whether they're friends or romantic or just or whatever. So they're going to get close. They're going to talk, right? And if yeah. you see somebody in the gym, you're like, oh, they're probably fine. So it's just the environment with which um, you're entering. So let's say you're talking to, like, the vaccine-hesitant people. Sure. What would you say to them as to, like, yeah. a convincing argument of... I mean, I think, you know, vaccine-hesitant people, and I encounter a lot of them on Instagram... And I've actually gotten messages lately like, hey, you know, like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I was there's no way I was going to get this vaccine. But after kind of listening to what you had to say for the last nine, ten months, like, I got my vaccine yesterday, um, which is good to hear. The most important thing about the vaccine hesitant people is to not criticize them, especially when they're hesitant. You don't criticize them. You don't say you're dumb. You don't you don't scream at them and say, are you an anti-masker? You don't say, God, you're so, you know, you're ridiculous. I can't believe you're hesitant to get this vaccine. You need to get blah, blah. You educate them. You teach them. You show them why. You show them how the immune system works and you show them how the vaccine works and how it works in the same way. Again, I think that the, um, the way into, into being able to change somebody's mind is through education. People have to feel like they changed their mind on their own. When is the last time somebody looked at you in the face and said, you changed my mind? Never. <laughs> You, you know what? You're right. Trump is a good dude. Yeah, I am so, I was so wrong about that. I get it. Like, that doesn't happen. Yeah. So people have to feel like they made their own decision. And I'll be honest with you guys. That is the way in which I operate when I am doing things, right? I am almost doing, what was that movie with Leo DiCaprio? And um, start with an I. I think inception where you're entering that person's mind. Yeah. So basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to enter their mind and I'm trying to just trigger a thought that allows them to develop the understanding of considering what I am saying to be true. Right. They don't have to do it right then and there. I don't care, but that's the type of education that I give. And again, for me, my practice is all built on cell communication, immunology. Like that's what I do. Right. And so it's easy for me to talk about it, write it down, show them to get them to come to this understanding at some point. So um, you're a husband. I'm a husband. Oh, a father. I'm a father. You are a medical provider. Yes. A content creator. Yes. Like, how do you do all this? I have an amazing support system. 
I have an amazing wife. She's beautiful, <laughs> by the way. Uh, thank you. My wife will say that I have the most energy she's ever seen out of anybody she's met. I don't know. Part of the events that take place in my life, part of the reason I'm able to is I'm able to do this is just because I don't know. I just have all these when I'm working out, when I'm doing the Peloton, I just have all these ideas, right? I have all these um I don't know, I have all these things I want to do. Like mm-hmm. um I didn't become extremely comfortable with myself probably until like a year ago. I was there were always battles that I had with myself. I mean personally and this is, you know, it's hard to admit, but like me being a black guy, um I always like you know, I dated black, white, Mexican, I dated everything. But I married, you know, interracially, right? My life was white. But people would always say stuff, right? People would always, and I was very uncomfortable with that, right? For a long time. And um, then I just realized, I was just like, look, this is, you know, I am who I am. I married her because I love her. And we have two children now. Like, and I'll say that to people. I'm like, people will still message me and say, like, mean things, you know? And I'm like, I have two kids. What do you want me to do? Like leave oh, my wife and two kids and go mind. like, it's so, you know, it's so rude, but you just, I just eventually, I just became comfortable with myself. And the way that you do that, I think you have to spend a lot of time by yourself. And one of the things that I did all the time, and my wife will tell you this, is throughout my training, throughout everything, I always went to lunch by myself. That was my time. I would go eat Japanese food at Three Samurai in Iowa City. I would go eat Japanese food at um, Takanami in Iowa City. Or I would go to 126 in Iowa City on Fridays, and I would have this steak sandwich, and I would sit there by myself all the time. Mm-hmm. And it just allows you to become aware. So what is, like, day in life? Yeah, of, what's a day in life? Of me now? Yeah, um, like, yeah. I did that day in the life for Kevin Jubal that day. Um, but a day in the life of me nowadays, it's going to drastically change in like three weeks. But a day in the life of me nowadays is I get up at like five, six. I do fasting cardio. I get on the Peloton. Then um, I get off the Peloton, take a shower, come downstairs and have, well, for the last two weeks, I had three eggs and two turkey sausage patties. These next two weeks, I'm going to have a cup of egg whites, two pieces of Ezekiel bread. Uh, then I either go to clinic or go around in the hospital. Okay, Throughout that time, or even before that, I might give two or three webinars, lectures, because I'm always lecturing for many different types of companies or for the community. Um, whether it's on interstitial lung disease or asthma or immunology of something, right? Vaccines doesn't matter right now. Um, then you know, I have my clinic. Then if I'm filming that day, I'll film that day. Uh, then I come home and sit my punk ass down on the couch for a minute, play with my kids. Then I study for like maybe an hour or two, reading papers and things that I know that I need to read. Um, then I get on the Peloton. Um, then I work out in the gym. And then I go to bed. I mean, that's kind of like my day. Mm-hmm. I have three offices. I have two in Orange County. One in Lake Forest on the street from my house, mm-hmm. one in Newport Beach, and then I have one in Riverside, which is like 40 minutes away. 
So I drive to Riverside usually on Tuesdays, do my interventions in the morning, and then I have clinic in the afternoon. And occasionally I get a hospital consult there, but I really don't go to the hospital there because it's just out of the way, right? It's not home and I want to practice here. So probably in the next three weeks, I'll probably make an announcement. And I guess I'll just make it here. I'm probably going to end up leaving Riverside, um, closing my office there. And the patients that want to follow me can come to my office either here in Lake Forest or go to Newport. Um, or I may just go to an office like once a month or something like that. I just think I have to be home because mm-hmm. I got to support the family through a difficult time. Yeah. Um, but luckily my family's here. My mom lives in Laguna Beach. My brother lives in Laguna Beach with his wife and kid. Um, and I've got great friendships in Orange County, um, you know, that I'm close with five other couples that we're really close with. We all have kids that are the same age. And, um, you it's know, we just got to support each other. When all this was happening, when I was reposting some of your stuff, a couple of the nurses that you work at at Riverside were like, we love him. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad because, you know, I grew up in Riverside. I learned how to do whatever I'm doing. I learned how to do that while I was learning how to be a better clinician in Riverside. And I think that, you know, the patients in Riverside are just so appreciative. Mm. They're so mm. grateful. Cool. Um, and it's something that I'm really going to miss. Um, but it's something that is absolutely necessary uh, in our household. Yeah. So you're going to make life changes to, you know. Yeah. Happens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we always, we kind of always like to close with just like, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? That's a, that's a big question. We didn't even like prep you for that. No, the best piece of advice I have ever received. All right. This is a heavy one. It's heavy. Here we go. Okay. Most people may not understand this one, but my grandfather, when I was in... I don't know. I was probably in college, high school, college. He looked at me and he said, Jamie. And I said, yeah. He said, it's never because you're black. So he started saying it. He would say it to me almost every time he saw me. It's never because you're black. It's never because you're black. When I was a kid. I was like, what's he talking about? Like, and got older and you have these experiences. and You realize that what he was trying to tell me was that you're going to experience racism. You're going to experience prejudice. It's a very real thing. But that can never be the reason as to why you don't accomplish what you set out to accomplish. You can't stop. Mm -hmm. You can't decide that I'm never going to get there because I'm black or because you're black. And... I used to think it meant that, like, maybe he didn't think that racism existed, but no. It was just about knowing that racism exists. He knew that he couldn't get to where he got if he thought that. Mm No matter if he was always the only black guy in the room. Always. My grandfather was a leader um, and did great things. And I'm always usually the only black guy in the room, right? At least out here. And so he knew that, told me that. And wanted me to understand that to be able to get to wherever I am at this point in time. And I have to thank him for it. As much as uh, racism is still dominating our society in the United States as it is, 
you still have to have this attitude of it's never because you're black to be able to get through. And some people are going to disagree and that's okay. I think that's actually really a really um, profound thing for anyone who, you know, cause I mean, he was born in 1918. Yeah. That's a big deal. Oh, yeah. I mean, and just, you know, overcoming maybe like a bigger message being, Oh, you got to overcome whatever your thing is or, you know, mm-hmm. or push through whatever your, your yeah. thing is. Um, okay. So well, before we head out, we want you to give yourself a big shout out. Where can everybody find you? Um, so you can find me um, under Dr. J Rutland on Twitter, which I don't really do that much. Instagram, DRJ Rutland. YouTube, I am Medicine Deconstructed with Cedric Jamie Rutland. Medicine Deconstructed at YouTube. It is amazing. It's like, okay. It needs I like it's I. sending that one. I like Sorry. sending people to that one. No, we'll link all, right. all those too. in our show notes too. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. This was such a fun episode. We hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did recording it with Dr. Jamie Rutland. Share the word on this episode too, because honestly, I know that we're very much geared towards healthcare providers, but I think that this is so educational and can be really beneficial if you know friends or family that are really looking for more information about the virus, about the vaccine and everything. So- Send them our way. And then when they listen, tell them to rate and review. Yeah. (laughs) And if they leave their Instagram handle, guess what? You're getting selfie swag. swag. Uh, If you guys leave your uh, handle in the review, we will be sending over our selfie swag bag to you guys. We have an awesome Selena selfie pin now. She's real cute. She's adorable. Um, We have our stickers. So thank you so much, you guys. Um, Make sure you are following us on our Instas. That's at Nurse Tori. And hey, Samantha with two A's. And make sure you guys also check out our merch. Oh, my God, you guys love a day off. Off the clock, wearing the hat right now yes. because I am off the clock We right now. are so – thank you so much for all of you who have made purchases. We are so I thankful love to you. you guys wear the stuff. It gets me so hyped to see people wearing the it's merch. It's so fun um, it. to see all of you. Thank you so much. We we love seeing it on you guys because it's just – I don't know. It's just a fun moment. Like going to a little ASIB. We, we love you guys. This community here is insane. Yeah, you guys, we just we're so thankful for you. Um, So selfiepodcast.com. You can check our merch out there mm -hmm. and you can watch all our episodes there on Apple podcasts, on Spotify, all that good stuff. So thank you so much for the support. Thank you so much for the support. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you guys. Have a merry, very merry. Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas. Christmas. Oh, my God. How did we not even say that again? Merry Christmas, you guys. Happy holidays. holidays. We love you. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 